let's get started. Paul gets out of his first imprisonment at the end of what book? His first imprisonment is talked about at the end of what book? Biblical book. Book of Acts. He gets out of his imprisonment, and he doesn't get out in Acts, but he's imprisoned in Rome in Acts. Acts ends. He gets out of his Roman imprisonment. He goes to Crete, where Titus is. He leaves there. He goes up to Ephesus. He leaves there. He goes up to Macedonia. At some point, he heads out to Spain. He spends two years in Spain. He comes back. He makes a few more stops, and somewhere along the line, he's arrested again. And what happens when he gets arrested again? Goes to Rome. He goes to Rome. He writes what letter from Rome? It's one of the three we're looking at today. Second Timothy. Yeah. He writes Second Timothy. And then he gets out of jail and he, no, no, he, he gets executed. So, okay. So today we're going to go through these three books. Let's ask this question. Why did Paul write 1 Timothy? He goes from Crete, gets up to Ephesus, and realizes that what he said in Acts 20, that after I leave, false teachers will come in, is true. And he gets to Ephesus, and he realizes there's a whole bunch of false teachers there, and he wants to stay in Ephesus to help. He wants to stay in Ephesus to try to fix the problems. But he knows he can't because... He has to go. And so he leaves Timothy behind. And he gets out to Macedonia to write, and he starts to write Timothy a letter to give him some help. Why would he need to give Timothy some help? Direction. Direction? Okay, that is true. Young. young guy. I think, I think that what I see in Timothy, the letter um, is Paul's theology of the church and how the church should mm-hmm. be governed. All of those are correct answers, actually. The church at Ephesus, was it a brand new church? Did they already have elders established? Bible quiz. Someone says yes. Anybody else want to back them up on that? He is correct. Acts 20, they actually have appointed elders. So by the time Paul gets back, this is a well-established church. They already have a board of elders there. Is Timothy an elder at the church? Well, I mean, he has to be an elder because he's going to go conduct elder work at the church. Wait a minute, but Paul, they laid hands on him to be a pastor. Well, that's what he's trying to trick us with. This is a trick question. It is a trick question. You should be an elder to be a pastor, no? Right. An elder is a pastor. A pastor is an elder. Is Timothy an elder at the Ephesian church? No. No. I mean, he's an elder over all churches, I would say. He's kind of in a weird position because he's not technically an elder there at the church. He's an apostolic representative. He's working for Paul. And so he doesn't have the same kind of influence and gravitas that an elder would have at that church and he's certainly not Paul so he's this young guy who's kind of been left there and he's been made responsible to help get this church in order kind of a tough position for him to be in 
And so Paul writes in the letter, what's the purpose of the letter? Paul exhorted and instructed Timothy in the Ephesian church to stop the influence of the false teachers and restore order in the church. And in fact, in this letter, he spends so much time dealing with the false teachers that he actually mentions them in no less than 28 verses and deals with their false teaching. And I just want to spend a little time looking at the false teachers and what they were saying. First Timothy 1, by the way, on your handout, you have a basic outline. This comes from uh, John MacArthur. And if you just look, there's two full chapters dealing with false doctrine and false teachers. And the other chapters that aren't dealing with those are giving you the opposite side of the false teaching and how to correct the false teaching. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. I'm leaving you here with the, ex the explicit instruction you're to teach these guys to stop teaching strange doctrine. This is a really interesting Greek word. Heterodidoskaleo, it means to teach a different doctrine. It refers to having a standard of teaching, and you've left the standard. Timothy has been given a standard of teaching, and he is expected to keep that. Um, 2 Timothy 2.2 2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I've given you a, a standard of teaching, and you are to hold on to that standard, and you're to pass that on to other people. He uses the same word, heterodidoskaleo, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. Would someone read 1 Timothy 6, verse 3? Actually, read 3 through 5. Because he's going to describe not only the false teaching, but the teachers who teach it. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and, de and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Notice the, word, the phrase different doctrine there in verse 3. That's our word, heterodidoskaleo. It's a doctrine of teaching other than what you have been given. And he describes these men as being conceited. The word for conceited, you might say, is uh, besmoked. They're clouded in smoke. Have you ever been in a smoky room? Hard to see? This is the same word he uses in 1 Timothy 3 to describe what an elder should not be. An elder should not be a new convert for they might be, uh, become conceited. They might become clouded by pride and arrogance. And then they can't see. And he says these false teachers, their real problem is that they're arrogant. They're proud. And they like strife because in strife they can be right. They can look smarter and more knowledgeable than other people. William Hendrickson gives us a, a little idea of what this kind of person is like. He says, this is a person who will get all excited about questions like this one. Is it permissible on the Sabbath to throw away the pit of a date? One person might answer, the pits of dates to which some of the meat adheres may be thrown away. Other pits must not be thrown away. 
Another person would disagree and expresses contrary opinion in no uncertain terms. Again, the question might be asked, if it is permissible to throw them away, where and how should they be thrown? And the answer might be they should be thrown outside, to which another might reply, no, indeed, they should be thrown under the bed. Or one might say the person confronted on the Sabbath with the problem of what to do with the date pit should turn his face toward the back of the bed and throw the pits with his tongue, i.e. spit them out. Arguing about just complete nonsense. Like, who cares what you do with the pit? Do whatever you want with it. But sitting there bickering, dividing each other, getting mad over little trivial matters. That's what arrogance produces. Paul does give some examples of what kind of teaching these men were giving. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 3, he says, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. By the way, where does he say that doctrine, those doctrines come from? Anybody know that passage well enough? Where do they come from? Different doctrine, different standard comes from doctrines of demons. They come from demons. 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. He gives another example of, of, their, um, of these men. He says, And they are immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. These are so-called leaders who say, well, homosexuality is fine. It's perfectly okay. Don't worry about it. 1 Timothy 1, verse 10 and 11. There's some other teaching there. 1 Timothy 1, verse 4. Nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering, furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Myths and genealogies. Those two are actually describing the same thing. In Jewish tradition, the rabbis would go into the Old Testament and they would find a name in one of the genealogies. So that's like, like Genesis 5. They would go find somebody's name. And then they would come up with this story about this guy, whoever he was. And they would teach this story as being some kind of like real thing. It was completely made up. But then they would sit there and argue about it and debate it. And you'd have your story and I have my story and we'd sit there and debate this. And he calls them myths because that's what they are. Completely fabricated. And that's, this is the kind of men that had gotten into the church and they had become teachers in the church. Their teaching did nothing to advance godliness. It did nothing to edify believers. It did nothing to build up the church. All it did was give rise to speculation. Let me speculate about what this guy was and what he did. And then we'll sit here and debate about it. Just brought endless debates. Did nothing but divide people, cause quarrels and contentions. And this seems like it was a major problem in the early church. Because here we, we have this 1 Timothy 1, verse 4, we have um, endless genealogies which give rise to speculation. Go over to 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, not quarrelsome would be the idea. 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. 
Women, that would be the wife of the deacon, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate. A malicious gossip is someone who goes around just talking about other people all the time and spreading negative information. Usually that's untrue. Proverbs 16.28 says that gossip brings strife. And by the way, malicious gossip there, do you know what the word is? Malicious, malicious gossip, it's one Greek word. I believe it's diabolos. Oh, yeah. That sounds like a Spanish word. The, the accuser who goes around pointing their finger at everybody else. But this is also forbidden for uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 13. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. We already looked at 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, where the false teachers stir up strife and quarrels. Gossip stirs up strife and quarrels. 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Godless and empty chatter, speculating about nonsense and trivial matters. ESV says irreverent babble. Irreverent babble. <laughs> I like that. Verse 23 But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to te teach patient when wronged. Anybody want a uh, pastor or an elder who just picks out every little fault that you have? I wouldn't want that. Wouldn't want that as a friend. Wouldn't want that as a pastor. Wouldn't want that as anything. <laughs> Yeah, everybody will leave. Nobody wants that. Titus 2, verse 3. He repeats it again to the church in Crete. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to too much wine. Titus 3, verse 2 to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. You just shouldn't be talking about other people and trying to stir up strife and speculating about nonsense. Chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. You know, there are some doctrines that are actually true that aren't worth debating if it's going to bring division. It's just better for you to stop and go, you know what, we should just agree to disagree. Yeah. We, we've had people come into the church and say, well, you guys are pre-tribulational rapture. I'm mid-tribulational rapture. And they want to sit there and debate it for hours. Like, I don't want to debate this with you. We just disagree. It's okay. But these kinds of individuals who do this, Paul has a very clear instruction for them. Actually, he has a clear instruction for the rest of the church. Look at verse 10. Titus 3, verse 10. 
reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Give them two warnings and then say goodbye. Do not put up with it in the church. And certainly don't make them leaders in the church. The early church had plenty of problems with people dividing, people arguing over silliness. All right, back to 1 Timothy 1. That's not what we should be doing. That's not what the church should be doing. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. True Christian teaching seeks to edify, to build up believers, to encourage them to love God, to live lives that are proof of love of God, holy living. The true Christian faith teaches so that people will love each other. And loving each other means putting other people over yourself, which means you're not going to insist on everybody seeing it your way. Seeing other people as more valuable than yourself. Christian teaching seeks a good conscience. Paul said, my great boast is a pure and blameless conscience. I know nothing against myself. The most miserable Christians in the world are ones who have a defiled conscience. It's not external religion. These false teachers were teaching a form of Judaism that was all external. Focus on what you're doing and all your behavior. Nothing to do with the heart. These teachers weren't interested in any of this. In fact, 1 Timothy uh, 1, 6 and 7, For some men... Straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They want to be teachers of the law. They want to be known as teachers. They want to have all the titles, but they don't actually know anything about the law. And all they have is their, their personal speculations. And they're pushing a works righteousness trying to get you to earn your salvation through works. Like the Pharisees, they had no interest in love. They had an interest in winning arguments, exalting themselves, and ultimately gaining power and wealth in the church. Paul later referenced their teaching, 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. On the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You have much more important things to be doing than arguing about nonsense. And it's for that reason when Paul gets into chapter 2, he gives instructions on how the church is to be behaving, or what is supposed to be happening in the church. By the way... There is an interpretive challenge. There's actually a couple of interpretive challenges in chapter 2. Anybody know what they are? Yes. All right. Since it's... Here's one argument that they make. This command, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. In my undergrad, I had a professor who brought this up, and he said, Look, guys, this command is cultural only. And here's the argument. In Paul's day, it was chauvinistic, and the men controlled everything. And so Paul wrote this only for that time and that period, and that's it. And it's not principial, and it doesn't apply to any other church in history. The 
burden of proof is always on the person who wants to make it cultural. Because if you take that argument and apply it to anything else, go over to 1 Thessalonians and he says, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. Well, the only reason Paul was writing that because the people in Thessalonica were a bunch of immoral people. So it's, it's culturally bound. It has no application to us today. You can do that with anything, right? The other problem is, if they're wrong, what are they teaching you to do? They're teaching you to sin. So the burden of proof is on them. How do you prove from the text that is culturally bound? And you made a great point. He points back to creation. All right. I think we're all in agreement on that. Doesn't Paul somewhere actually talk about Adam and Eve? Yeah. yeah. For it was Adam who was created first. Uh, I think in 1 Corinthians 11, he makes the same argument. (laughs) Chapter 3, Paul then goes in and describes what elders and pastors are supposed to be. He describes verses 1 through uh, 7 are describing elders. Starting in verse 8 to 12, he describes deacons. These are the kind of men they should be looking for, that they should be appointing to the pastorate, so they could avoid appointing any more of the false teachers, and they can get rid of the false teachers. And then he tells them, in the rest of the book, he tells them what to do. Now that you've found a good elder, now that you have found some good pastors, what do you do with them? First Timothy 5. He says you need to make sure that you care for them. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. We've seen Paul not only take wages at times from people, but also refuse to take them at times. But he says, Look, your pastor shouldn't be starving to death. If he's sharing the word of God with you, make sure he's taken care of. You're to take care of them in monetary ways. You're also to take care of your pastors. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Anybody know where that's a quote from? David? (laughs) It's in Matthew. That comes out of Deuteronomy 19.15. And Matthew which is a good reference, Matthew 18, 16, he says you need two or three witnesses so that every fact may be confirmed. And it's not, Percy, if I may use you, I want to say Percy's sinful in some way and he's disqualified. It's not, well, you know, Percy, I had this one time where you did X and then Carl shows up and, hey, I had this one time that you did Y and both of these are the same kind of issue so there's two witnesses, Percy. We got you. The two to three witnesses need to be able to confirm every fact of the same sin. So if I'm going to say Percy did X, Carl should come back and be able to say the same thing. Percy did X and I saw him do it. Right? So that every fact may be confirmed. Now what happens if you have an elder who's in sin and just refuses to quit? He's disqualified, but he goes even further. Look at uh, verse 20, 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. 
that's a little bit more than what we do at church discipline. The church discipline, we just stand up in front of the congregation and call this person to repentance. And if that doesn't work, consider them an unbeliever. Here there's a call for an active verbal rebuke of the elder. And he gives the reason for it. So that you'll instill fear in everybody else. If they'll rebuke an elder in front of the whole congregation, what are they going to do if I sin? And it'll also help the other elders know you, you can't be doing this. Then he says, appoint them slowly. 1 Timothy 5, 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing, nothing in the spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share in responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself from sin. If you hastily make someone an elder and they're living a sinful lifestyle, you become responsible and a partaker of their sin. So appoint them slowly. He also provides some help for you in your personal walk. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, through 4, teaches on prayer in the church. Pray for all those in authority over you, governors, kings. He teaches on wealth. 1 Timothy 6, 6-10. through 10. We're speeding up here because of the time. I just looked up. We have 30 minutes and with two more books to go through. Be content with what you have. Verse 8, he says, be content with food and covering. Verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evils. Money itself is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. This was a question they asked us in seminary. If a man is a multimillionaire, is he disqualified from ministry for a love of money? Yeah. Okay, we have some saying yes, some saying no. Well, we had the same problem in seminary. <laughs> Yeah. If he loves money, then that's sinful. But if he has a lot of money, that's not necessarily sinful, right? And the two aren't necessarily the same. Right. Just because I have a lot of money doesn't mean I love my money. Right. And just because I don't have a lot of money doesn't mean I don't have a love of money. I could be poor as dirt and still have a love of money. Mm-hmm. And our professor actually asked us, so how much is too much? And I mean, you get really legalistic at that point, and, you know. Well, you know, he should have if, if the, you know, yeah, if it gets bad. So, wealth is not the issue. It's the love. All right. Any questions on 1 Timothy? We need to move on to 2 uh, uh, Well, we would go to 2 Timothy, but 2 Timothy is the very last book written. So, we're going to go to Titus next because 1 Timothy and Titus were written together. So, turn over to Titus. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about who is Titus. Uh, he's only mentioned 13 times in the entire Bible. And he's never mentioned in the book of Acts, which makes it a little hard to understand who he is. We know he was a Greek. Galatians 2 verse 3 says he was a Greek. We know that he was saved through Paul's ministry. We know that because of Titus 1 verse 4, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Titus was a convert under Paul's ministry. There's some speculation as to when that happened. We know that he was with Paul fairly early on. How do we know that? Because in Galatians 2, he shows up in Jerusalem with Paul. I take Galatians 2 to be the Jerusalem Council, so he shows up around 49 AD at Jerusalem with Paul. And Titus is actually Paul's example of a Gentile saved without being circumcised. 
And he even says there in Galatians 2, verse 3, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So we know he was a, a convert of Paul's. We know he was there fairly early. There's some speculation that he was saved in Antioch of Syria. That's speculation. They say it was in Acts 11, but we don't actually know. Titus was a co-laborer in the faith. Paul actually sent him to Corinth three different times, and he sent him there alone. Why would that be a challenging ministry to be sent to? Who remembers anything about Corinth? Yeah. Yeah. It, so Corinth had all sorts of problems. Read through First Corinthians. There's immorality. They were abusing the Lord's table. All sorts of trouble going on in the church. And Titus gets sent there three different times to deal with them. Yeah. They were attacking Paul. Remember, we went through 2 Corinthians. We just looked at all the different attacks on Paul. 2 Corinthians 8, 23, As for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches and a glory to Christ. He worked with Paul. He knew Paul very well. Paul trusted him. And his experience in Jerusalem qualified him to be the guy at Crete. Titus 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. Titus had plenty of um, experience with Judaizers. He was there in Jerusalem when they were dealing with the Judaizer controversy. He knows about false teachers. He knows how to deal with them. And Paul wants Titus also to deal with false teachers. The Judaizers there on Crete, Titus 1, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, those who claim to be Jews, then saying you must be Jewish in order to be Christian, you must live like a Jew. Titus 1, verse 11, he says these men are to be silenced. Don't give them a platform, don't sit there and argue with them forever, just tell them to be quiet. Verse well, I'm going to read verses 11 and 12 for a second. Who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul hears that and says, verse 13, this testimony is true. The Cretans were notorious for immoral and godless living. So Titus is there in Crete, and he has to deal not only with the false teachers, but he has to deal with an immoral society. But Paul knows Titus, and he knows Titus can handle it. And he leaves Titus there to appoint elders and to set in order what remains. That is to say, finish establishing these churches. Everything that I haven't accomplished yet, you finish it. I was going to go through and talk to you about the three times he sent him to Corinth, but we don't have time. The last time we hear of Titus is 2 Corinthians 8. On the third trip, he goes out there to collect the offering for Jerusalem. You guys remember that offering? The next time we hear of him after that is in the pastoral epistles. We hear about him in 2 Corinthians, and we hear about him in the pastorals. 
and he shows up on the island of Crete immediately after Paul's first imprisonment. Paul gets out of prison, he gets on a boat, he goes to Crete, Titus is there, he's already at work. We know he was in Crete. Titus 3, verse 12, he was supposed to finish setting up the churches there in Crete and then leave and go to Nicopolis to meet with Paul. We don't know if that happened. We assume it did. Because at the end of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, For Demas, having loved the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. So apparently Titus had gone to Rome when Paul was arrested. He was there in Rome with Paul, and Paul sent him to Dalmatia. Okay, kind of given this answer, but why did Paul write the letter to Titus? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, like Timothy, Paul, uh, Titus is an apostolic representative. He's representing Paul. And in that day, you can't just walk up and say, Hey, I'm the representative of the Apostle Paul. You need to listen to what I have to say. Didn't work that way. They would expect him to have a letter of authority saying, This is from Paul. Here's what Paul says. And so this letter would provide Titus the authority he needs from Paul. And now he can go to them and say, look, this is what Paul says. And in fact, Titus 2, verse 15, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Second, the letter gives Titus very specific instructions on what he can do. And you have on your handout a basic outline. The whole letter is all about instructions. Chapter 1, instructions concerning church leaders. Starting in verse Verse 6, he gives the qualifications of an elder. He doesn't talk about deacons, but he does talk about elders. Now, this list isn't exactly the same as the one he gives to Timothy. Why do you think there's a difference? Are there different sets of qualifications? Why do you think there's a difference between what he gave to Timothy and what he gave to Titus? They were going to different places, even though the qualifications are the same. Maybe the specific churches needed more encouragement and specific instruction about That's certain right. things. Yeah. Ephesus was a well-established church. It had been in, in place since Acts 20. Crete was a brand new church. In 1 Timothy, he says, don't appoint a new convert. In Titus, he doesn't give that instruction. Why? Because they're all new converts. <laughs> If they don't appoint a new convert, they're not going to have any elders. So they're different because he's writing to different churches. But when we look at the elders, the qualifications for elders, we look at both sets and both lists and we bring them all together. Does that make sense? Chapter 1, 10 through 16 gives instruction on the false teachers. Chapter 2. Chapter 1 is all about church leaders. Chapter 2 is all about church members. He gives instructions on how members are supposed to live. Sound doctrine, sound teaching produces right living. Chapter 2, verse one, uh, verse 1, he says, But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And when you teach sound doctrine, verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. And he goes through the different categories within the church. Chapter uh, 2, verse 2, older men. 2, verse 3, older women. Verses 4 and 5, younger women. Verses 6 through 8, young men. Verses 9 through 10, he talks about slaves. And he describes how each of them are supposed to be functioning, behaving in the church. And all of it flows out of right living. 
And all of it is motivated by what Christ has done for you. If you look at Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That is also an interpretive challenge. It's not saying to all men without exception. It's saying to all men without distinction. Everyone of every single category of men. How do we know that? Because the Bible says clearly that there are people going to hell. So... Obviously, that can't be universalism. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God appeared for two reasons. So that you would live a godly life, that you would reject ungodliness and worldly desires and live righteously. Chapter 3, Paul doesn't give instructions about what happens in the church here. Now he gives instructions on when the church goes into the world. And how is the church to live in the world? Chapter 3, 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. There's nothing worse for the news, for the church, is for Christians to show up on the news and they're out there breaking the law, getting arrested, doing crazy stuff in the world. Chapter 3. Verses 3 through 8 are the motivations for living a godly life. Basically, uh, think of what Christ did for you. That should motivate you. Chapter 3, 9 through 11, avoid the false teachers and their errors. And we already looked at this. Don't just avoid them. Reject them. At the core of this letter is a desire for the Cretans, the people in Crete, to turn away from these false teachers, to ignore their false doctrines, and to embrace sound doctrine and thereby their lives will produce good fruit. So that, that kind of gives us a purpose statement there. Paul exhorted and instructed Titus and the churches of Crete to stop false teachers in the churches. And there's a, there are people today who say, well, we shouldn't have doctrine in the church because doctrine divides. And yet Paul is writing to the churches here, and it seems like doctrine is all he can talk about. Okay, any questions on Titus? Let's go to 2 Timothy. It's still considered a pastoral epistle, but it's really more an epistle of exhortation. It's more of a personal letter than a, a pastoral letter. The purpose statement, Paul appealed for Timothy to carry on the ministry of the gospel after Paul's death. Just think about the personal outline here. Chapter 1, 1 through 5, Paul's personal greeting. Chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 4, verse 8. Paul's personal exhortations. And then nine to the end is personal concerns. Three out of the four chapters are all dealing with exhortation. Exhorting Timothy. Paul is in prison. We know that, 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Chapter 2, uh, 1, verse 16, he says, Do not be ashamed of my chains. We know he's in Rome, verse 17, Onesiphorus goes to Rome and he finds Paul. So we know he's imprisoned in Rome. We also know that Paul expects to be dying soon. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Well-known passage. I'm already being poured out by, as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul is expecting to die. And it's likely going to be just a few months after he writes this letter. And so he writes to Timothy to provide Timothy some encouragement. 
Why would Timothy need some encouragement right now? He, he's learned that his, ma- his mentor, his friend, his co-laborer in the faith is getting ready to be executed. And the Romans were known for their very humane forms of execution, right? Drink offering was wine that they would actually pour over the top of the burnt offering, and it would actually flame up when the alcohol hit the hit the flames. Timothy's this young guy. He's in Ephesus dealing with all that, and now the guy that he's depended upon, the guy he learned from, his mentor, his friend, is about to be executed. He could probably use some encouragement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and Timothy, by the way, here's your future. Oh boy, this is what's coming. What encouragement does Paul offer him? Chapter one, verse eight. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. There's the first encouragement. Don't be ashamed. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to make you want to be ashamed. Don't or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. There's a second encouragement. Timothy, I want to encourage you as I'm about to die, suffer. Verse 13. In the midst of that suffering, remain, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ. Don't just suffer and then give up. Retain the teaching that you have received from me. Chapter 2. Suffer as a good soldier. 1 through 13. Verse 3. Chapter 2. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. If you've ever been in the military, you know that suffering is just part of the job. Soldiers suffer. You're to suffer as a good soldier. Doesn't matter who the president is, doesn't matter who your general or your admiral is, there's going to be days in the military you're just going to suffer. Just going to be miserable. Verse 5, he compares it to competing in the games. It wasn't like the NBA back then. Uh, They had some really strict training regimens, and they had to suffer quite a bit to compete in the games. The best ones would give their life. They were the most honorable ones, would give their life competing in the game. Verses 8 through 13, Paul encourages him with truth that should motivate him to endure the suffering. When you're going through suffering, don't look at yourself. Think about the truth of what God has said and let that be your motivation. And then Paul exhorts him to stand fast in sound doctrine. And once again, we return to this idea of don't wrangle over words. Chapter 2, verse 14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. I mean, that really puts the false teachers in perspective. When they sit there and wrangle over words, all they're doing is destroying the people around them. And they don't care. Does the to do it, but... He's given the instructions that it's not just to Timothy, but to us also, that we should be focused on doing God's work and pleasing God instead of trying to please ourselves or others. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, we're going to be pleasing God. That's right. 
And if these false teachers had any concern about pleasing God, they would not be arguing over their trivial nonsense. Verse 15, make sure you rightly handle the Word of God so you have nothing to be ashamed of. Verse 16, avoid worldly and empty chatter for it leads to ungodliness. Verse 17, same idea. It spreads like gangrene. We looked at those verses. Verses 17 and 18, he actually names two of the false teachers. People today say you shouldn't name false teachers. Paul disagrees. <laughs> Verse 19, those who name the Lord should abstain from wickedness. Wickedness here would refer both to ungodly living and the false teaching. Verse 20, this is an interesting passage. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. He's talking about people in the church. There are people for honor and for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, that would be the ungodliness, the wickedness, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. You want to be useful in the Christian ministry? You want to be useful in the church? Reject false teaching and live a godly life. Chapter 3. Paul exhorts him to continue teaching from Scripture even though opposition to what he's teaching will grow. And the opposition to him is only going to get worse. Chapter 3, verse 1, But realize this, that in, er in the last days, difficult times will come. And then he explains why. There, difficult times are coming because people are going to get more and more ungodly. Verse 2, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, though they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. That describes modern America. Notice, holding to a form of godliness, although they deny its power. I think of people today who tell me, well, oh, I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus can save me from sin. But this sin right here, he can't do anything about it. This one's just going to have to stay. You're going to face more opposition. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul gives him a solemn charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Don't worry about the world, what the world is doing. Don't worry about what people in the church are going to say about it. You just keep preaching the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Just keep giving them the truth until it comes out of their ears, and most importantly, until it comes out of their heart. Just keep preaching. They won't like it. Verse 3, they won't like it. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They'll go looking for teachers that will just tell them what they want to hear. Just tell me my sin is okay and I'm cool with it. They won't like it. Verse 5, he exhorts them to fulfill his ministry, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, do what you've been called to do. And then he points and he says, look, look at my life. I have finished the race. I fulfilled my ministry. And when you get to the end of your life, you don't want to have to look back on it and say, man, I wish I would have done this. 
And he closes the letter with some personal concerns and what is one of his chief concerns as he closes his letter? I, I, I think this is great. He, one of his chief concerns, he repeats it twice. Come see me. 1 Timothy 4, verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. Verse 21, make every effort to come to me before winter. He just wants to see his good friend again. Just come here quickly. Kind of a personal letter. If you just take these two books and apply it to the church you're going to, and do what it says in these books, if every member of the church would do what these three books say, churches would be so much better off. Let me pray and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for uh, these three books. We thank you that you have not uh, left your church without any guidance on what we are to be and what we are to do. Uh, we thank you for men like Paul and Timothy and Titus. Uh, we stand on their shoulders. Uh, this church is a byproduct of their ministries. And we still look back to them and uh, learn from Paul and learn from their example. And we just ask that you would help us as a church sound on, to stand on sound doctrine, to reject false teaching, to reject factiousness and quarrelsomeness, uh, that we would seek to edify one another, to love one another, and uh, Lord, we do ask that you would help us today to be encouraged and edified as we think on the resurrection of Christ, that He is risen, that our sin has been done away with, that He has conquered death, hell, and the grave, and that this morning we can rejoice because of the work of Christ. And we ask this in His name. Amen.